Gerald and I are messy people, partly because we have somewhat poor organizational skills, but it's also because we have so much stuff. Our storage spaces are often full, causing our things to overflow into clutter on our desks and floors, which has caused us to become dissatisfied with our living space. This has also made it hard for us to find the things that we need, which often get lost in a sea of things that we don't need. So how did we get to this point? Well, at first, the problem was laziness. The thing that I definitely have way too much of is clothes. In my closet, I think I probably wear a total of like, maybe 10 or 11 shirts consistently, and the rest of it just sits in my closet. I've set these plans on donating the clothes mm -hmm. sometimes or like selling it to a place a uh, secondhand clothes shop like a thrift store or something mm -hmm. and uh oh, that's just so much trouble i still have the printer that you when you're moving out of your place a year ago i still have that printer wait are you serious <laughs> yes because i don't i don't know how to get rid of it <laughs> I thought, oh my god, I can't believe that you still it's have it. It's been sitting in the trunk of my car for a year. <laughs> I know, dude. It's so, it's so hard to get rid of things, man. Gerald and I got tired of living in our mess. So in this episode, we tidy things up and talk about how our clutter got there in the first place. Hey guys, I'm Alan. And I'm Gerald. And you're listening to Brain and Butter, a podcast about self-improvement against all the odds. We clearly have some problems. Like, it's not too hard to sort through some clothes or Google how to get rid of a printer. But hey, we're trying to be better. We want to surround ourselves only with the things that we use or care about and to get rid of the excess. And in order to reach that ideal, we needed to get rid of some of our things first. We forced ourselves out of laziness and into action. But then we encountered a different kind of problem. It was difficult to say goodbye to the things we owned. I remember five years ago, I was looking into the market for a new gaming mouse. I had the choice between $130 mouse and $150 mouse. Both mice had checked off all the features that I wanted too. Ergonomic grip? Check. A good brand that gamers trust? Check. Adjustable sensitivity? Check, check, check. But the $50 mouse had one extra feature. It had a compartment where you could add or remove weights, effectively changing the feel of your mouse. And I was thinking at the time, hey, by adjusting weights, I can make this mouse feel absolutely perfect for me. Or so I thought. Ultimately, I did go with the $50 mouse, and although I've been happy with it, I never actually ended up using those weights. Just recently, I found the box of weights in my closet. Things that were a deciding factor in my purchasing decision that I never used and five years later, I was still seriously thinking if I should throw it away or not. A truly logical Gerald would see that I didn't need or want a mouse with adjustable weights. And here I am, still thinking that I might use them someday. I essentially paid $20 to take up space. There are definitely things that I hold on to because I think that I might use it in the future. However, my issue has more to do with the past. I remember wearing this faded blue short sleeve button down from J. Crew on my first day of classes at a new college. And whenever I see it, I can vividly remember the crowded bus ride to class and the feelings of excitement and apprehension that come with new beginnings. 
However, that shirt isn't something that I would ever wear again. It looked worn out by too many washes, and the material, which was never super comfortable to begin with, started to feel even more unpleasant. But people connected their past with different things. It might be souvenirs or photos. In my case, it's my clothes. Now, I can part with most of my closet without a problem, but there are still quite a few articles that I just have trouble getting rid of. The reason Gerald and I were struggling to get rid of our things was because of something called loss aversion, a concept that was first demonstrated by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Their work on this topic later won Kahneman a Nobel Prize in economics. Here's Kahneman explaining what loss aversion is. People hate losing much more than they like winning, and we actually have a pretty good idea of the the ratio or the factor by how much people hate losing more than they like winning. And it's about, on average, I mean, that's a crude estimate, but on average, it, it's between two and three. So I'll give you an example. If, if you ask, uh, say, Princeton students, uh, how about a gamble where if it shows tails, you lose $10. If it shows heads, you win X dollars. What would X have to be before you like the gamble, before you're willing to take it. They'll want $25. This means that the amount of pain felt from losing $10 is two to three times more than the amount of pleasure felt from gaining $10. Loss aversion was a major hurdle for us to overcome. When we're about to discard something, we'll think, what if I decide that I want to change the weight of my mouse in the future? Or what if when I'm older, I want to reconnect with my college days? The pain of losing those opportunities and items is felt as soon as we put what's in our hand in the discard pile. While the benefit of a tidier space, well, that won't be felt until we go through that process many more times. Fortunately though, Mari Kondo, an organizing consultant who wrote a book titled The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, has a method that helped us over the cognitive hurdle of loss aversion by reframing the problem. Normally, when tidying up, you have to choose what you get rid of. Mari Kondo changes the rules to where everything is going to be thrown away, and you have to choose what you keep, with the guiding principle being that you choose to keep what brings you joy. It's pretty brilliant. By reframing the problem, we were able to combat the cognitive hurdle of loss aversion. After we used Mari Kondo's method and got rid of some of our clutter, Gerald and I reflected on the other side of the equation, our purchasing decisions. And when we examined our behavior, we noticed something interesting. I've always had a problem with buying the newest and latest when it came to my hobbies, like the latest lens or camera or headphone. And before I knew it, I had a ton of everything. So to get rid of some of that extra everything, I tried going to Craigslist and Facebook market but I somehow ended up with even more new stuff than I had started with. This is completely counterintuitive, so let me explain. So while I'm selling some stuff, a new $400 lens comes out with 10% faster focusing, 5% lighter weight, and slightly better image quality than the one I have. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I can just sell my old lens for $200, so this new lens would really just cost me half as much. I used the money I got from reselling to justify buying a new lens or a new headphone and then spend the money I quote saved to buy something random off Craigslist. The final result is that I stupidly end up with even more stuff and less money than what I'd started with. I like to dress well. I like my clothes to look good and I also like them to feel good. A lot of my clothes will start to look worn out and feel increasingly uncomfortable over time. 
and I wouldn't want to wear them anymore. So they'll sit in my closet and slowly the number of clothes that I'm willing to wear will start to decrease until I'll suddenly decide that it's time to go out and get new clothes to replace the old clothes that I decided was too worn out to wear. We noticed how much of our stuff was disposable, how often we'd stop using something and just replace it, even if it still worked. This feels natural to us, and I'm willing to bet that it feels pretty natural to many of you listening. But this mindset didn't always exist. It's the result of a larger economic and cultural shift that began around 200 years ago. In the early 1800s, things were intended to last a long time because they were expensive and took a long time to make. For example, hand sewing was the only way to make clothes because sewing machines hadn't been invented yet. And hand sewing a plain cotton skirt used to take half a day, while a more complex skirt could take one or two days. So because clothes were such a pain to make, they were patched up and passed down and kept for a really long time. This was true for other possessions as well. If something started to wear out or break, people would try to fix it. It's not like now, where many people would throw away a shirt as soon as there's a hole in it. Industrial and production technologies improved a lot in the latter half of the 1800s, which made things way easier and way cheaper to make. This led the change from things being made to last forever to things becoming more disposable. And one of the first disposable goods were paper shirt parts. This includes paper collars, bosoms, and cuffs. These products were available because of the improvements in paper production, and they became really popular, with over 150 million disposable shirt collars and cuffs made in 1872. These paper products were great because people could just throw away the collar when it got dirty and replace it with a new one. There was no need to go through the trouble of doing laundry or wearing a dirty shirt because you didn't have time to wash it. In the late 1800s, disposable products started becoming increasingly popular. Business owners jumped on this trend because instead of selling a durable product once, they could continually sell a disposable product, giving them a lot of repeat customers and, more importantly, way more money. This trend led to an increase in the number of disposable products introduced into the market, from razor blades to sanitation napkins, even watches. Disposability continued to permeate throughout American society. And while some products were still valued for their longevity, disposability was coming for them too. However, durability was not going away without a fight. And the battle between Henry Ford, the head of Ford Motors, and Alfred P. Sloan, the head of GM, was the epitome of this conflict. Ford was a modest man. He was born and raised on a small farm in Michigan on July 30th, 1863. While he was young, Ford always had an interest in machines, anything from clocks to steam engines, and he eventually went on to work at the Edison Illuminating Company before starting Ford Motors. Ford would have been described as an old-school engineer during his time. He strongly believed in the idea of durability and simplicity in the design of his products. He wanted his famous Model T to be affordable to every American, and the only car that people would ever need. Sloan was born in Connecticut on May 23, 1875 to a wealthy family. He graduated from MIT with a new class of engineers who were aware of the inevitability of innovation and its consequence, obsolescence. This ideology propelled Sloan to advance existing technology as opposed to just figuring out how to make the current ones more reliable or durable. And then in 1899, his father acquired a previously bankrupt roller bearing factory and appointed Sloan as its president. Sloan was then able to transform this previously failing factory into a successful business, merging it with General Motors and eventually becoming the CEO of GM. During the heyday of the Model T in 1921, it seemed like Ford's idea of the durable car was the way to go. 
His Model T dominated the market with 61% share of the automobile market. Sloan, true to his new technology replacing the old approach, tried to beat Ford by putting Charles F. Keatering, the creator of the electric starter, in charge of coming up with technological innovations that would make the Model T look obsolete. Keatering tried to develop a car with a better engine than the Model T, and in 1923, they released the Chevrolet Series C with the new copper-cooled engine, but it was swamped with problems and negative performance reviews. They planned to make 50,000, but only 759 cars were made, and of those 759, only 100 were ever sold to customers. But that didn't stop Sloan. He was determined to be competitive against Ford. He wanted to beat Ford with a technologically superior product, but after the failure of the copper-cooled engine, he didn't have that card to play anymore. So instead, he decided to try and beat Ford with style. He made GM cars look and feel more luxurious and sporty and less like the horse carriage style of the Model T. This turned out to be a very good move for Sloan and GM. They were able to beat the Model T by making it look outdated. It was so successful that GM started releasing new models every year. They even tried to make their own older models look outdated, which got people to trade in their old cars for a newer model, even when their old cars were still functional. Ford initially refused to get on board with this practice. He still believed in the ethic of durability. Even when his market share fell steadily, all he did was reintroduce color and make small, superficial changes. In 1927, Ford finally stopped production of the Model T and introduced a new model called the Model A. And although the Model A sold well initially, Ford still refused to release newer models, and it eventually came to look obsolete as GM kept on redesigning every year. Sales of the Model A started to decline because customers wanted the more modern and stylish looks from GM. And in 1932, Ford finally gave in and started to use the same yearly release strategy. In the end, Sloan won the battle. He created a throwaway culture within the automobile market. A product that was meant to last became one that people traded in for new models because their old cars seemed old-fashioned, and not because they stopped working. But this wasn't just a winning strategy for automobiles. Other industries adopted this strategy as well, and it has profoundly shaped American businesses and consumer habits up to this day. Since then, throwaway culture has evolved and became further ingrained in how we see the world and how we consume. But why was it so successful? The popularity of disposable products is due to the fact that they're good enough, convenient, and most importantly, cheap. Just think about how we use disposable razor blades and plastic bottles. We've gotten used to products that we can just throw away when they're no longer useful. It's a luxury to not have to think about maintaining something for long-term use. GM's success with their strategy, called psychological obsolescence, plays into our desire to fit in and be cool. Stephen Quartz, a professor of philosophy and psychology at the California Institute of Technology, did a study where participants, when shown pictures of products they thought were cool, like a MacBook or Air Jordans, were stimulated in the same part of the brain as when they received a compliment. Yearly releases constantly change what we think is cool, and this gets us to buy more because it makes us feel good to have the trendiest thing, and makes us feel antiquated when we have last year's model. So what does this mean for us exactly? I think Al and I are pretty reasonable people, but we found ourselves surrounded in a mess that we wanted to tidy up and get rid of. How do we end up with all this junk when we clearly never set out to buy it? Why are we persuaded to keep buying stuff? The answer is rather simple actually. 
After all, we humans will always want that shiny new thing. We exist in a system where things are made to be disposable, and there's no escaping it. The incentives of businesses is to maximize revenue, and throwaway culture and repetitive consumption help them get to that goal. Many fast fashion retailers, for example, make cheap clothes that don't last very long and have frequent changes in trends. This causes people to keep buying to replace worn out clothes and to stay in style. Smartphone makers have yearly releases with minor spec bumps and design changes that suggest to people that their old phones are obsolete. Companies get us to buy things by making their items seem disposable, and our minds convince us that these disposable items still have utility to us long after we stopped caring about them. And this leads to clutter. After we made this podcast and went through the process of getting rid of things and thinking about our consumption, we had a better idea of what we did and didn't care about. I started to look for higher quality clothes when I shopped, and I've started to actually follow the instructions on the care label. This has helped because the clothes that I don't feel like putting an effort to maintain are clothes that I don't care about, and it makes it easier for me to get rid of them, making it so that my closet is only full of clothes that I like. For years, I've continually thrown away stuff, and it seemed like I had never gotten anywhere because my room was still always messy. And though I'm new to it, viewing my stuff from this more informed perspective has made it a little easier to throw away something I don't see myself using again, like my old notes or a broken airsoft gun. I've also been less stressed and happier about what I buy. I'm fully aware that my own logical barriers in disposing the old stuff will take some practice. But it's almost as if I finally confronted my belongings, looking at them head on to determine if they had any real significant value to me. Defining the characteristics of what we like in a product has helped us add in more of what we value into our lives and has made it easier for us to get rid of the things that we stopped using and caring about. And this has helped us reduce our clutter, which was caused by a combination of our biases and consumer culture. And that's not to say that we're perfectly tidy now. There's still progress to be made but we're hopeful that we won't have to do another big clean again for a while. Thanks for listening. If you like what we're doing, please recommend this podcast to a friend, rate us on iTunes, and if you can, support us on patreon.com forward slash brain and butter. You can keep up with us by visiting our website, brainandbutter.org, our Facebook page, or on Twitter, where our handle is brainbutterpod. A special thanks to Davey Cano for the intro music, Jennifer Martinez for the artwork, and our patrons for your continued support. You guys are awesome. The music in this episode is by Kumiku, Free Harmonic Orchestra, Ryan Little, Chris Zabriskie, U.S. Army Blues, and Loyalty Freak Music.